0: Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. Blakeradio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul.
1: Daniel. And I'd like to remind people we have a lively chat going on at Healing with Dr And people can call in either just to listen or ask questions at 914-338-0695. All right, as usual. Another interesting topic. I won't grow up. As a kid, we used to sing this song "I Won't Grow Up." And nowadays, we have a lot of uh, New Age philosophies urging people to approach life with the mind of a child. And we have these beautiful models, all somehow pre-puberty, just just at the edge of childhood. And so I personally think this is all a a carefully orchestrated plan to get people to continue to be a child, to be subservient, to be subordinate for their whole lives. And this popular child song, along with other conditioning, may be, and I think it actually is, an important piece of lethal Uh, read that, lethal, deadly, conditioning, which is contributing greatly to the 880,000 killings by medicine each year. Now, we can't call them murder because murder is unauthorized killing. So this killing is authorized because doctors do have, after all, special license, and many drug companies, after all, do have exemption from prosecution. So these are authorized killings. So there, I'm going to talk about what it means to grow up and how you can have this uh, childlike mind to have a beautiful life and see the wonder in every day, and at the same time, be a full-fledged adult and exercise all the rights and privileges thereof. So we're going to talk about what it means to grow up, why you should grow up, and what kind of growing up will actually save your life. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So my glimpse into... The concept of being grown up occurred very early at the age of three. So, as a, as a group of adults gathered outside my parents' suburban home to stone the house and harm the inhabitants, of, of which I was one, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, something is wrong here, and I, or somebody who answers to me, needs to step in and make something happen here. Of course, things you know calmed down and resolved. And as my childhood continued, I had some more mundane experiences, like my parents telling me to do this or do that. And when I when I had any kind of reluctance to do something, I would hear, "Well, when you grow up, you can do it your way." Said, oh my God, I get to do it my way! Haha. <laughs> Well, that's all the encouragement I needed to start writing out uh, just what my way was going to be. Then another thing happened as I was a kid. You know, parents say things like, well, you can wear this, you can't wear that, you got to be home by this hour, you got to get up at this time. So I had a few questions about these uh, rules. And so my parents said, when you grow up, you get to make the rules. That's when you make the rules. I said, okay, make a note of that. I get to make rules. So I started busying myself with rules. Well, now I get to be an adult. What rules am I going to make? And so I started uh, making rules. And apparently I was making too many rules. And my parents brought to my attention that I did not have the right to make rules about what other people would do. But I had total complete freedom to make rules about what I was going to do. I said, that is okay. I can do that. I can do that. So I limited myself, limited my scope of rulemaking to making rules that would govern my behavior. And of course, it was explained to me, because I explained things to children, that other people were making rules about their behavior. So while I was busy making rules about my behavior, other people were busy making rules about their behavior. I said, wow, that's really neat, that is so cool. So, of course, I was always excited when I met other kids to find out what rules they had made lately. <laughs> you can imagine uh, that there were a lot of kids that this just didn't connect with, you know, like like Jennifer, we're talking about playing jacks here. I said, yes, yeah, what about rules? Make some rules. And so uh, they, didn't, they didn't really pick up on that. So, but this was an important concept, that being an adult meant that you got to make the rules. I said, "Uh aha, make the rules about your own behavior and that there was nobody, as an adult, nobody that had the right to make rules about your behavior. So I said, well, wait a minute now. There's something out there called the government, and they're making rules. (laughs) My father helped me with that one. So one day, Dad and Mom, apparently... um, I guess he must have promised my mother he was going to do something. So my mother was reminding him for the umpteenth time, uh, at least in his mind, the umpteenth time, that he had promised that he was going to do, well, whatever it was. And he said, I'll do as I darn well, please. It's my house, and in my house, I'm the ruler. I do what I want. I said, gosh. That is an interesting concept. In my house, I make the rules, and I get to do what I want. Wow, you can imagine. I could not wait to grow up.
2: I could not wait to grow up. I was so excited.
1: So that's what it is, to grow up. To grow up means to make the rules. And then another thing happened. I came home, and I was complaining to my mother. And I said, Mom, because I already got it, I got it. I couldn't make rules for other people, and I couldn't tell other people what to do. But I had got it in my mind that I could still, I could still encourage other people, provide incentives, you know, all these things. I said, Mom, Mom, these kids at school are unencourageable. Can't encourage them to do anything. Then we came, another rule. Mom said, well. When you grow up, and as you grow up, it is your responsibility to control your behavior. And that's what you have to do is control your behavior. So you that's one thing for you to make rules, but you have got to control your behavior. You have got to decide to follow your rules and not worry about other people, their behavior, and their rules. I said, okay, all right, gotcha, gotcha. So here I was. At this time, I was pretty old. I was about... Oh, I must have been 13. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had the wrong, right, yeah, incorrigible was the correct word, but as a child, I called it unencourageable, because I was working very hard to encourage people and they just were not responding. And so I told my mother they were unencourigible. I was just, I was done out. So let me translate this into modern day English. So in other words, Being an adult means that you make the rules. I'm making this real personal. I want you to take this really personally. Whoever is listening, take this real personal. It means that you make the rules about your behavior. Nobody else does. And if if someone makes the rules, what does that make them? That makes them a ruler, a person who rules. So being an adult means that you are a ruler. You're the person who rules. You make the rules. Next. It's also, as an adult, you decide how things should happen. That means you preside over something, basically over your life, in particular, your life in your house. And if you preside, what does that make you? It makes you the president, the president of your world. You preside over what happens in your house. And third thing is you control and govern your behavior. That's right. Govern. What does it make you? It makes you the governor. So you are the ruler, you're the president, and you're the governor. This is an important thing to, to grasp. And so as a child, I, I, I figured out, well, I'm the ruler, I'm the president, and I'm the governor. And so when I said, everybody can grow up to be president, I said, well, president of what? Well, president of my own house, of course. And so when I was uh, 18 and had the incredible honor of actually meeting the president of the United States, I, I wasn't that impressed, because of course I was the president of my own dominion. And one thing that people need to understand that they are the ruler of, the president of, and the governor of is at least their own body. And so, it's difficult to get too fascinated with kings and rulers when you realize that you're the ruler and you're of your own body, of your own life, and nobody can overrule you. And so when I was older, I guess I was in college or I just got out of college, somewhere in there, and along there, uh, Lady Di uh, got married to a prince. I don't remember his name. Anyway, any rate, uh, there was this fever over the whole process over their wedding, over their lives, whatever. I said, wow, I, I, I just can't have any, take any time to worry about that because I'm a ruler and I've got all these rules to make about, <laughs> about my life. And so I can't worry about their life. I'm sure that they've got it under control. This is important. This is really important. I just want to what I've got to do with with." With healthcare, well, with healthcare, people are convinced to assume a role. This role is called patient. And what is the patient? The patient is an individual who has no rights to make rules, presides over nothing, and governs nothing. It is this is a shocking state of affairs for an adult? Shocking, shocking state of affairs. I think. So, if you are a patient, that means that you have agreed to be governed by the physician, so the physician is the governor, you agree to be ruled, the rules are made by the insurance company, and you agree to be presided over by various government agencies, whether it's the uh, CDC, the FDA, the whole list of And so by accepting this role of patient, you basically abdicate your adulthood. You just wipe it out, gone. Adulthood, that's it, gone. And so it's very important then to exercise fully the state of being an adult. So let's go back then and take a look at this modern day concept of approaching life with the mind and the eye of a child and being open to the wonderment of all that's around you and not being jaded or cynical. All right, gotcha. So, what does this mean? Well, the exciting thing about the perspective of a child (laughs) is the child is basically brand new. And not so much that the child is naive, but that the child is not influenced by propaganda, hasn't yet been exposed to it. And so then the mind of a child, if you want to call it that, or the eye of the child is that the child, this child's mind or child's eye is not naive in the sense of being stupid, silly, or subordinate, but it's actually wise in the sense of recognizing truth, acknowledging truth, and following it. And we're all, you know, the the famous story about the king who had no clothes, who was being deceived by the uh, tailor who actually hadn't made any clothes for him. And the king was walking around naked. And it was a child who looked at the king and said, well, he's he's naked, he hasn't got any clothes on. Um, Everyone else, all the adults, uh, were instead influenced by the propaganda That because this was the king, they were obligated to pretend that he was really dressed when clearly he was not. This is what's going on in large measure in the medical uh, industrial complex or in the field of health care. Certainly in the United States, we have something called the standard of care, which is analogous to um, the tailor constructing these garments for the king. So we have this standard of care, which is the, uh, a ritual, and we have the notion that the ritual results in benefit to the patient, to the individual who subordinates his will, his rulemaking power, his governing power, his presiding power, subordinates all of this to the system, that he will be rewarded with good health. This is patently uh, false by just by any measure. So that is what uh, the present proposition is. And so approaching this with the mind of a child or eye of the child is to say, wait, I don't see any benefit here. I don't see any benefit happening. And so I'm not going to participate in this because the, what's being done is not helpful. And so that is the attitude that's needed. So moving forward then, in terms of one's interaction with healthcare, as it's experienced uh, in 2015 in modern uh, Western cultures, is to look straight ahead. Look at the obvious. Pay attention to your experience. If the last four times you went to the doctor, you actually got worse instead of better, then there's a sign there. There's some truth there. And if you have the mind and simplicity of observation of a child, then you can say, you know what? This did not work out well. This is not what... I'm looking for, I'm looking for health, I've given it the college try, I haven't gotten health, I'm gonna do something else. And that is what is, uh, and that's what's needed. Now, as far as adulthood goes, uh, it's important to, to make rules to preside and to govern. What does that mean? When you translate this into interaction with the medical industrial complex, this means that it's very, very important um, to make your own rules. The doctor may have a standard of care. He may have a protocol, that's nice. Uh, but you know, remember, it's his protocol that he's following. and pets, it may not even be his protocol. I guarantee you it's not his protocol. It's a protocol uh, imposed on him by uh, the rulers, which would be the insurance company and overseen or presided over by the president or the government agencies and so what you need to do is at the first level is make the rules you make the rules whatever those rules are and it's important for you to feel comfortable making these rules when the doctor says well the next step in this protocol is XYZ say, excuse me doctor I have my own rules and uh, uh, according to my rules, that would not be the next step. My rules, the next step is whatever you, you want to put there. And an um, example of this is when I first started in medicine, just up in my practice. And a popular thing back then was antibiotics and decongestions and nasal sprays, of course, for sinus infections. So this guy came to see me and I decided, well, he had a sinus infection. So I put him on these three drugs, which would be an antibiotic, decongestant, uh, and a nasal spray. And so he comes back two weeks later, We switch the antibiotics, of course, because it takes a while to clear the sinus infection. And he comes back again, He says, because he's got his role. So he says, Doc, ever since I've been coming to see you, I'm taking more and more and more drugs, and I feel about the same. I said, really? He said, yes. Yeah. And so it's clear that his rule was he needed to start feeling better. And so I said, you know, you got a good point there. And so I stopped all of his drugs, and he did just fine, and he felt great. And so it's really important to have your own rule. And a lot of times when you just bring it to the doctor's attention, they will do what I did to this guy, which was I just said, well, you know what? You got a point there. Let's... uh. Let's stop these drugs. So one rule you might have is that if you take a drug, you've got to feel better. This is important. So that means if a drug does not make you feel better, then you don't take it. This is a shocking, uh, absolutely shocking position or rule. And what this rule means is that you don't take any drugs, no drugs at all, to prevent anything. You don't take a cholesterol-lowering drug to prevent a heart attack. You don't take a blood thinning drug to prevent a stroke. No, not not a... Why? Because, well, first of all, that's a rule. If you don't want the rule, no problem. But if you do want the rule, I'll tell you why it's a good rule. It's a good rule because if someone is saying, take this drug and nothing will happen, you know, it's kind of a negative, negative promise. And so you have no way of knowing if the drug is really helpful. So it doesn't make sense then to have a rule where you're gonna take two, three, five, seven, eight, 10 drugs just to prevent something because of course you have no way of telling if they're they're helpful at all. So that's one uh, possible rule. I had other people come into my office. All my patients who came in, by the way, they had their own rules. And so other doctors had kicked them out of their practice because these people actually had their own rules. And these people actually did uh, did very, very well. Another rule might be that if you have a detectable problem, let's say a cold or a cough or bronchitis in the morning, whatever it is, that as soon as you feel better, you'll stop the drug. That's another rule. And so there's all kinds of rules you can make. And um, it's important, though, to exercise that to make the rule. So when you make a rule, what does that mean? Well, once you make a rule, that makes you the president because now you're presiding over the enforcement of this rule. And it also makes you the governor because you are governing your behavior to make sure you follow this rule. You're presiding over the situation because as soon as the doctor stops obeying the rule, then, you know, it's time for you to to end the association. So if people had these simple, simple, simple rules, they would live a lot longer. Certainly uh, fewer than 880,000 people a year uh, would die at the hands of the medical industrial complex. Now, there's another thing going on in the United States in Western cultures, which is very, very, uh, very dangerous. Okay, so as a kid, it was established, this is what I was told, but it's true or not, I don't know. It was established then that being an adult, I could make the rules, I could govern myself and preside over the enforcement of the rules, especially in my house. In my house, in my home, I could do all these things without limitation. Further, I could follow my rules Govern my behavior and preside over any and all events of which I participated outside of my home. And if at any point the activities in question did not comport with my rules, my governance, or my presiding, then it was time for me to leave. So, what that did then was that expanded my sphere of influence. only from my house but once I left my house I still had the right to control govern and rule my own behavior so there was no, no ruler you say so what well the big deal is that now with all of the surveillance going on this territory of personal rule is getting narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower so now we have electronic health records so that what was once private now becomes public and rules are made about behavior that was once private. And so this this uh, territory of governance, of self-governance, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, it's getting so small, in fact, um, that people are afraid to not get prescriptions filled because their drug company or their insurance company, which is ruling them, which is making the rules, their drug company, their rulers are watching. And this area of personal governance has gotten to be so small and so narrow that we now have with the uh, Affordable Care Act, where one's employer can, through an intermediary company, tell an employee what he should and shouldn't eat at, at home, and how much he should or shouldn't exercise. And so, what's happening is this fear of personal governance is getting. Dangerously small. When I say dangerously small, I mean people are being coerced into, or should say allowing themselves to be coerced, into following behaviors that are dangerous and deadly even in the privacy of their home. One obvious example of this is uh, diabetics who control their blood glucose to the point of having a hemoglobin A1C less than 8. Medical establishment itself has established that if you maintain your hemoglobin A1c below 8 with drugs, then your death rate increases by 30%. How cool is that? But if you don't exercise, the only way to escape that untimely death at the hand of your medicine is to exercise your adult powers of rulemaking, your adult powers of self-governance, and your adult powers of presiding over your own activity and what you will do. And so yielding this to the power of others results in actually premature um, death. And so this is an area... Where it's absolutely critical when you approach the healthcare system to approach the healthcare system with the full power, the full rulemaking authority, the full governance authority, and presiding authority of an adult. And so if you leave your Adult authority at home and instead assume the posture of a child or even worse a patient uh, then it's a deadly position absolutely deadly uh, uh, position so it's very important and it's a life-saving maneuver to uh, exercise one's full adult capacity. I'll give you an example Actually, you hear in Panama what happened. Uh, we have hospitals in Panama, it's like every, every place they have hospitals. And so there's this new thing going around now, hospital-acquired infection. Not nearly as bad as the United States. We have about one-tenth the frequency of hospital-acquired infections. But um, it was announced that there had been one death death due to a hospital acquired infection you know people got on the phone called up their relatives they got out of their hospital beds and went home they said no no I'm going home I'm not staying around here. I'm leaving this hospital and that's what they did they jumped right out of bed and they uh, went home and there were absolutely no deaths due to anyone leaving the hospital prematurely or uh, going home so this is an example of people exercising their adult authority. And in the United States, this is absolutely not done nearly enough, which, of course, is why, or well, part of the reason why. There's a tenfold increase in um, antibiotic-related death. So it's really, really important for people to approach the healthcare system with the feeling and with the full authority of of an adult and not be conned into juvenile behavior and not be conned into allowing someone else to make the rules. And in medicine the people who do the best, have the best clinical outcomes, are actually the ones who are the least obedient. And when I say clinical outcome, I mean uh, living a longer life and living a, um, a higher quality of life. And and that is the, the huge uh, piece about what it means to be uh, to be an adult, and you, you absolutely have to not leave your adulthood um, behind, uh, which of course is what you're pressured to do. People are tell you, well you're not a, you know, you're not a doctor, you didn't go to medical school, and to intimidate you into somehow believing. That you are not qualified to exercise your adult capacity. Well, it, it turns out that uh, adult capacity is not something that you need to be qualified to exercise. It's something that you simply have. It's like uh, your eyesight, it's like opening your eyes. Um, one does not need a special license or uh, permission to open one's eyes and look around and make a decision about what, uh, what a person sees. And so the 880,000 people who are killed each year by the medical system in the United States, um, a lot of these murders or killings could be avoided simply by a healthy dose of disobedience. Um, easily half of these individuals uh, willingly accepted medication and took it at the prescribed dose. And that's uh, that's a serious, uh, deadly, deadly habit. And so what it means to grow up then or to be grown is to exercise your capacity, to exercise your rulemaking, make your own rules. And I would just say go ahead and brainstorm, just write them down, any kind of rule you want to make. Any rule about going to the doctor, I don't know, never on a Tuesday, doesn't matter or only on a Thursday. Whatever rule you want to make, um, you know, just start making some rules. And the more rules, uh, the better. And the more rules you make, uh, first of all, a lot of the rules should pertain to outcome. Outcome in terms of what you want, what you want your life to be, and how you feel medicine should contribute to that. And this will make it so you can see very clearly, when what's going on is not contributing to your goals, your wishes, and your desires. So, that's key, and so growing up is a good thing, growing up is a positive thing, definitely embrace it, go for it, make a lot of rules, enforce the rules, at least enforce them where you're concerned, where you follow them. Now, a lot of people, again, they're intimidated because the employer's watching, the government's watching, the uh, insurance company is watching. So you can obviously remove yourself from surveillance. How do you do that? Well, you remove yourself from surveillance by one, not having health insurance. Two, not having a job, be self-employed. That way, you and your employer are one. So you don't have to worry about your employer's rules being different from your rules. A lot of people say, "Well, you know, there's a there's a penalty. Uh, you know, a ninety-five dollar penalty if I don't get insurance." Well, it's a $95 penalty if you don't get insurance. And for most people, it's at least a $2,000 penalty if they do get insurance. If you do get insurance, they've got to pay the $2,000, and then they're under surveillance, and they're not free to enforce their own rules, which we know would probably save their lives. So, you know, there are choices either way. So the important thing is to grow up, get excited about it, make some rules, and try them out. And that is key. And as far as looking at things fresh and new, that's an important thing to do. And what is, what's the best way to do that? The best way to do that is to turn off the TV and not even hear the commercials about the latest news angle drive or the latest um, fabricated so-called illness or disease. And so when you turn off all of that propaganda input, then when you hear something about the standard of care or a particular protocol, it will immediately not make sense to you. Why will it not make sense? It won't make sense to you because, well, it doesn't make sense because it is nonsense. And it won't make sense to you because, of course, you haven't heard and believed the propaganda. Uh, The next thing that's important is to really have total, complete, 100% confidence in your right, your natural right to make decisions about your body. You got to at least draw the line at your body. All right. So you don't think you should make decisions about your home? I get it. I mean, a lot of people have smart meters attached to their house. I understand. So making decisions at least about your body—that's a good place to draw the line. And then you can even expand that line a little more. Maybe make decisions about everything that happens to your body and within one foot of your body. And as you get more confidence, more confidence, you can expand your your authority level, uh, to maybe include one room in your house. So this is what you've got to do. No matter who's looking, can't be intimidated by that. No matter what laws or rules other entities might have. I've had people tell me, well, you know, my insurance carrier might raise my premiums if I don't get screening. Well, what's going to happen if you get screening and it shows you have a disease and you feel perfectly fine then what are you going to do are you going to go and get therapy for feeling bad when you feel great and accept therapy that makes you feel worse that's a uh, you know so you have to it's also it help to think these things through all right so i'm going to get the screening i don't want to get I know at least half the time it says you have cancer, you really don't. I'm going to get this screening. If it shows I have cancer, what am I going to do? Well, if you don't plan to accept any therapy for it, then you can just stop right there. I don't even get the screening. Again, make your own rules and do what you want to do and do it your way. It's important. Because it turns out that just doing things your way is a heck of a lot safer. Um, We know that the way that um, the modern medical establishment has is is deadly, and at least for 880,000 Americans every year, it is the cause of death. And also 25% of people who encounter the system are simply worse off because of the standard of care because they had access to medical care. And there's um, no evidence that the increased access to care is creating a healthier population. When I say healthier, I mean, the nursing homes aren't emptying out, um, disability roles are not declining. So, these things indicate a lack of effectiveness. And so that is the bulk of what I have to say. People have questions, they can click their buttons if they're calling in, or they can enter questions on the chat room. I'd like to uh, give everyone an update on vitality capsules. Um, As many people know, the vitality capsules are made from Organic, wildcrafted, and chemical-free whole herbs. And part of that process is screening the herbs for contaminants. And so one of the herbs showed up that it was contaminated with an unwanted microbe. And so we have to send that back to the suppliers and get Uncontaminated or from a different supplier. It's going to be about a one-week delay, but uh, my target date is the 21st of June, so it allowed for that delay. So we're looking forward to getting vitality um, capsules back in uh, back in stock. All right, we've got lots of questions in the chat room. Okay. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, so he in the chat room is having difficulty with their knees. <laughs> they have 60-year-old knees. And they've only been hurting for two days. Well that's not bad. Okay. If you have MSM and it's not pure, then I would not bother taking it. The simplest thing, with turpentine. And in, in the case of knees have only been hurting for two days, is just rub on some turpentine, and then take a look at what you're eating to see what can, um, what in your diet could possibly be causing the problem. <laughs> okay. Is it healthy to soak grains before cooking them in water with an acid like lemon or apple cider vinegar? Is this unnecessary? Totally unnecessary in my book. In other words. I've not had anyone soak their grains and get better because of soaking them. Um, I personally um, tried soaking grains, rinsing them, letting them ferment a little bit. I live in a tropics, so anything in the that will ferment quickly. Um, so I didn't find it um, to be helpful. Um, what I did find, though, was that the grains were a lot softer. So the rice was a lot softer when I soaked it and when I let it um, ferment a bit. Okay, heard of, of a product and it made. Uh, but, okay, yeah. I think if you're feeling fine and nothing's wrong, then there's no need to take any action. I am totally not in favor of taking any preventative anything. Um, It's like they say in the 60s, getting better when you're feeling no pain. That is possible. And so if if, if you're feeling good and you take something like a supplement and you feel even better, then that's a good supplement for you. Keep taking it. But if you're feeling good, you take a supplement and you don't feel any different, so you're taking the supplement to prevent some unknown event from happening, then that's, I, I personally think that's not valid. And so I also think, by the way, that up, it is not valid to take the medical model and superimpose it on the natural world. In other words, to superimpose the medical model onto natural healing, it doesn't translate it doesn't work. So, in other words, if you're into the modern medicine model, you're probably taking some drugs for high blood pressure to prevent uh, stroke or heart attack. Then maybe you're taking an aspirin a day to thin your blood um, to prevent stroke or heart attack. And then maybe you're taking a cholesterol-lowering drug to lower your cholesterol. And Of course, you're lowering your cholesterol to prevent a stroke or a heart attack. Many people will try to translate this to modern, natural methods. And what they'll say is, okay, what can I take to lower my cholesterol? And that misses the point that your body has a high cholesterol to adapt to some life condition. And so the question is, what is the life condition your body is adapting to, and how can you remove that condition or remove that stress? For example, your cholesterol may be high because your body is repairing blood vessels that have been damaged by sugar or white flour. And so lowering your cholesterol, possibly, could be accomplished by lessening your intake of sugar, sugary beverages, um, or white flour. Another possibility, if you take a look at your cholesterol, you have HDL cholesterol, which is a good cholesterol, and LDL, which is supposedly bad cholesterol, is it might be that having a high cholesterol is associated with longevity, actually, which it is. So if you're older, let's say um, over, over 65, certainly over 70, having a high cholesterol is actually associated with living longer and being healthier. So you really don't want to lower it not with artificial means like a drug and not with natural means, especially not if it's a beneficial thing. So you can't impose the medical model on natural healing. You can't say, oh, I want to reach the same medical targets. I want to do the same thing the doctors do, only I want to use herbs to do it. So with that attitude then, you can switch your whole strategy over to supplements and vitamins, let's say, and end up with very poor health. So that's important to do. It's important not to apply the medical model to natural healing. Because what's wrong with modern medicine is the medical model. And this is, this is a big piece to grasp. What is wrong with it is the actual approach, the actual theory itself. If you religiously, assiduously apply the medical model, then you can expect similar outcomes. In other words, devastation and death. All right, we have a question online. I think I'm hitting the right button here. Let's try it again. Aha. Uh-huh. There you go. Hi. Welcome. You're on uh, Healing with Dr. Daniels. Your name and your question?
2: Hi. Uh, this Hi. Is, uh Hi, I'm so sorry. Uh, this is Judy from New Jersey.
1: <laughs> oh yes. Hi, Judy.
2: Hi, Dr. Daniels. So nice to talk to you again. Uh I have a question. My husband uh, got stung, I think, by a bee this past Sunday. Uh, we're oh, not yeah. sure for sure if it's B, but it hurt a lot. But He seemed okay, but then yesterday and today, his hand got swollen. And he said it's just really itchy, but it doesn't hurt. So I told him, you know, don't worry, maybe just let it ride it out. Uh, but he's kind of worried, and then he wanted to take Benadryl. So he took one last night, and then today, he, see, he said seems to be a little bit better, but still feel funny. I guess, swollen. I guess I'm i just wondering, um, Dr. Daniels, what's the best way to handle, um, I guess, if in the future, if this happens again, what should I do right away? And also, what can I do now to help him at this point? Or just do nothing at all?
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't think you should do nothing. In the future, <laughs> what you can do is, as soon as he gets found, just put turpentine right there.
2: Oh, by the and way. We'll- uh-huh.
1: I put it right there on the, the spot right there. And that usually mm-hmm. is enough to stop it. Because a lot of what happens is the bee stings you, but in the bee venom, if you want to call it that, there's more parasites. So mm-hmm. just put some turpentine right there on the spot. Okay, got it. Now that you are where you are, um, the thing you can do for him is alternate hot and cold compresses, hot and cold compresses. That's going to increase his uh, circulation there, and it's going to pump those um, toxins and chemicals and junk out of, his, out of his hand. The next thing he needs to do is, I don't know how his bowel movements are coming, but he needs to have a few more bowel movements. And that way he can mm-hmm. poop out the the junk that's causing his problem. So drink more water, have more bowel movements, and put some hot and cold uh, on the hand there. And then if you, if you can see where the bite mark is, you can put turpentine there and see
2: if that helps oh I see okay okay thank you so uh, I guess at least he's in the clear normally if it's if he's allergic if there's gonna kind of like a dangerous reaction it would happen right away normally right
1: right 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 but now what can happen is he can just have itching off and on you know indefinitely for Mm -hmm. weeks and months and years it can just go on and then, you know, maybe, heaven forbid, they'll go see a doctor who'll give them steroids, and that'll make a temporary condition permanent. And then you, you're just chasing your tail. I mean, I've seen it. I had one patient who was uh, golfing with a buddy. So they were both golfing. They both got stung. Hmm. He uh, was wealthier, and he happened to have a friend who was a dermatologist. He called his friend. His friend said, ah, come in. I'll see you, you know, today. Um, the dermatologist gave him a pregnancy shot and gave him some pills and blah, blah, blah. And boom, the rash went away. It was a hot, great, wonderful. And then the rash came back. And that person had that rash for at least uh, three years where he was constantly treating it with steroids. His friend, who didn't have big connections, who didn't get the thing treated, who just uh, put some ice on it and stuff, uh, he was better in, in three or four weeks. So okay. the big hazard here, uh, as always, is medical care
2: itself. Let mm-hmm. I just ask you, Doctor Daniel. If normally, if we get stung by something, if there's gonna be a dangerous like reaction, if they couldn't breathe or things like that, it would happen right away. Is that how it works? Because yeah, usually pretty. Tell... Yeah,
1: it's pretty quick. Usually at least the same day.
2: Ah, uh-huh. oh, okay. Oh, it's the same day, but it doesn't have to be like right away. And if that's the case, it's Something like that's happening, you can see him having problem breathing, then is it okay to bring him to the doctor or is, it, is there anything just to stay home and do something about it at home instead of bringing him to the emergency room, things like that?
1: That's a good question. So, what they did, they actually done studies about this. I looked this up because people tell me, Dr. Dance, if I got stung and I have an allergic reaction, I want to go to the hospital and to be safe from certain death or, or whatever. And so what they did was they took a look at people who had bee sting allergies and who had anaphylactic reactions, and those who mm-hmm. did and did not get care. And they found that there was no difference in the death rate. Not to say that those who didn't get care didn't die, but the amount of death was the same, and this is why. Because when they went to the hospital, usually they got the wrong therapy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's uh, going to the hospital is, is, is apparently not... Uh, life saving, even if you have an anaphylactic like reaction
2: from these days. Oh, in this Very case, fast. what do we do at home though? What do we do at home though if you don't want to go to the doctor or emergency room?
1: The immediate thing to do, well, first of all, get stung. In this case, you don't have a life threatening allergy reaction. But if you, if you, so, if you get this thing, the first thing to do is to immediately slap as much turpentine on it as you can get. And mm-hmm. usually that will stop it. Well, historically that has been used. But let's just say you do go to the doctor, they're going to give you a pregnosone shot. And apparently the mm-hmm. pregnosone shot is not effective in saving people's lives, but epinephrine is. In your husband's case, uh, he has hypertension, I understand. And so Correct. the FMS of that would be a little dicey because then, you know, you have the risk of stroke, and so it's really, it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of being stuck between two very bad choices. Hmm. So his best bet okay. is to keep turpentine handy uh, mm-hmm. and to avoid bees. But he's not allergic, so it's really not a problem.
2: Uh, I guess that's the sign, right? Like once you've had it once and he doesn't have allergy, then it's in the future if he gets stung. That means he's going to be okay then. No, uh, he's not allergic then, right?
1: There's no guarantees, but my guess is he's not allergic to bees. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Daniel, for your time. And so nice talking to you again.
1: Oh, my pleasure. You're welcome, to.
2: <laughs> okay. Let's
1: see. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. All right, questions. Would you recommend that someone who has malnourished fast for a day or two or must the deficiencies be addressed first? You know, I would definitely recommend addressing the deficiencies first. You really can die if you fast. You really should, you really definitely, uh, definitely should address any nutritional dis- As many as nutritional deficiencies as possible before you fast. Fasting is not the first start for um, any intervention. Can LDL indicate it is being used to help you detox from metals and parasites? Um, No, I I think I think people are reading way too much into these laboratory tests. Um, LDL. These lab tests are simply number generators to convince people to take drugs. That's really all they are. And so you need to understand what the test is designed for. So a test designed to convince you to take a drug, whether it's going to benefit you or not, if that's what the test is designed for, then, then it doesn't have any utility beyond that. And so it's important to, under, to understand, you know, what's going on. Okay. We have another question here. Let me click this button. This is gonna be our last question because we're close to the end of the show here. Hello. Hi, your name is uh-huh.
2: Oh, uh, you know who I am. Um, your friend who's coming to visit you. Um what oh, about the Canadian Bill. health what about the Canadian healthcare system where everything is free, including minimal consistent drugs where but you can deduct
1: all your transportation and else health- to all your health food from from your income taxes, but nevertheless, people go to, the, to hospitals where they repeat, certainly
2: near where I was, um, they repeat operations over and over and over to get infected, and and my impression is that they make lots of money from each time they get infected, but the
1: whole system is designed, it's, it's the worst socialist healthcare system in the world, as far as I'm concerned, because it's designed to bring you into the hospitals because you get treated for free. Correct. It feels. um model of a, a lost leader. You know, they have this, um, usually a product is very low price, and the purpose of the product is to get people to uh, come in the doors, you know, because they're having a sale. So, the Canadian healthcare system, again, this is from my encounter with uh, people who live in Canada and with people actually who have moved to Panama from Canada, is that it's every bit as pernicious dangerous as the American system. Um, basically, it's the same standard of care. It's a similar protocol testing and procedures. It is the protocol testing procedures and fundamental basis underlying the system that makes it dangerous and produces the death. Now, I don't have access to or haven't dug deep enough to find the Canadian statistics on harm by medicine certainly the medicine that people get is as ineffective and as harmful as um the same stuff Um, down here had a guy who was having his abdominal gallbladder attacks he's canadian and before he left he got a checkup and got all of his medicines refilled and everything and the doctor down here third world country panama realized that his symptoms were just side effects of his medicines. stopped his medicines and he did just fine So, you know, medicine is medicine is medicine. Be influenced by whether you're paying for it or not because that doesn't make it any less dangerous. Um, A deadly dose is a deadly dose whether you pay for it or not. And that is it for today's show. Next week's show, somebody owes you an apology. So tune in next week to find out who owes you an apology and why. All right, well, see you then.